Hey, check it out. Our newest sponsor at Rebel Radio is Wix.com. If you need a website, if you have a business or just a career, or maybe it's your personal portfolio, if you're trying to get your hustle on, you got to have a website. Wix.com makes it easy. They have drag-and-drop editors. There's no coding, no programming needed. It's fast and easy for you to jump on and make a really good-looking website all on your own. It's free, and it's easy. What else do you want? Go to Wix.com today and get it going. Wix.com. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh, Rebel Radio is going down. What do you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. Yo, I love the Baker Boys shit on that. Those dudes are crazy. Welcome back to Rebel Radio. We are all over the web. Rebelradio.net, Facebook, Twitter, anything you can think of, we're there, except for all the other channels. We're not on any of those. But welcome. It's our Rebel Radio show. I got a special two-for-one for you this week. Kevin and Kevin. Kevin Kerslake is the director of a new documentary, As I Am, The Life and Times of DJ AM. Kevin Scott, DJ Kevin Scott, is his co-producer. And uh, they come in and talk about this film about, uh, you know, the life of, of one of the most influential DJs of our time and, you know, how the movie came together and what it meant to them personally. Kevin Kerslake is a longtime, uh, highly acclaimed music video director, kind of made his jump from the alternative rock world uh, into uh, now hip hop with this with this AM project. And he's going to talk about his journey and what, what this film means to him personally. Uh, Kevin Scott's going to give us some insights into the creative process, making a film like this, as well as everything else he does. He says his rule is don't sugarcoat it. If you got something to say, get it out there. I hope you enjoy the interview. I really hope you enjoy the movie. It's I think it's fantastic. Um, we'll, you'll hear in the interview, you know, I, I've known or I knew AM kind of off and on over the years. And I think this movie does a fantastic job really telling his story. I hope you'll check it out at djamdoc.com. And we're going to get into that and much, much more after the edm.com track of the week. Let's do that first. I was thinking about my 20s In my 20s I was thinking about my 30s In my 30s I was thinking about my 40s So hopefully in my 40s I ain't gotta worry You gotta get it right while you a younger man Be your own provider instead of holding out your hands Be the guy people rely on when they hit the fan Not the guy they picking up cause he can barely stand A grown man, not grown just because of years Grown because you set examples for all your peers When the rest disappeared you was always there Ready to sacrifice more blood, sweat and tears I know hard work and discipline ain't glamorous But I be damned if you see me panhandling or acting Alright that was the track of the week from our friends over at EDM.com that was Blueprint with a track called Long Term. I hope you enjoyed that. Check it out online if you did. Send us a comment if you want to hear more music like that. And now let's hear the interview with Kevin Kerslake and Kevin Scott. 
Nice. Nice. Well, welcome to the show. I appreciate you guys coming out. Kevin Kerslake, Kevin Scott. Um, we're going to talk about the documentary that you guys just worked on, uh, As I Am, mm -hmm. about uh, the life of DJ Am. And then I want to get into a little bit of um, your backgrounds and how you got to that point and you know, learn a little bit more about you along the way. Uh, but thanks for being here. Appreciate Thank you for it. Having us. Yep, thanks for having us. Got to see the movie at the LA premiere. It was fantastic. Um, you know, it was uh, you know hugely emotional, and you know I think as evidenced by it was re just a really interesting experience. I mean, the, the film was great. I know you guys had a kind of a Q and A at the end, and no one no one had any <laughs> questions, which I imagine was a little. I felt uncomfortable for you on stage, but yeah. but I kind of got it sitting there because I think you know it was just heavy like fun at times too but you know it was heavy and then uh but then everyone you know we went outside in the lobby and it was like a party and it was you know a really good time and and uh it's funny I, you know personally i woke up the next morning feeling all those emotions like i didn't it didn't really hit me at night um but the next day i was just like fuck this is you know I, like I, I just went through some shit. Yeah. And I, I can imagine what that was like for you guys. Did you know AM? Yeah, so uh AM played one of the first clubs that I promoted, um, uh, which was ninety five. It was a little wow. uh sort of shitty night at, at bar one back then. <laughs> uh I was kinda just getting started in in uh in that business. But um and then we sort of kept in touch. We weren't friends, but we just sort of knew each other you know, around the way whenever we, we saw each other and, you know, I kind of followed his career from afar and respected everything he did. Um, you know, talking, going back to the, the Q and a part was kind of tricky. We had a lot of talks about how we wanted that, how, how we wanted to sort of end it because the movie ends at such a, obviously a, yeah. a heavy place. And, uh, you know, should we, should we wait for the credits to roll all the way out and, you know, will people leave the theater and all of these, elements trying to figure out the best way to do that yeah and uh before i think when we did the other screenings they would they would cut the credits like right away and the lights would come up oh yeah and uh it it sort of i think you know after talking to kevin about it he felt like it was a little bit of an injustice to the to, uh, to the emotional part of the of the movie mm -hmm. so i think the decision was made to just let it roll all the way out and uh let people have that yeah that few minutes you know yeah so uh, I th <laughs> so we we found out the result of that, which was basically people pretty quiet at the end. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's fine. Totally Absolutely. fine. Yeah. yeah, I think that's actually was was the desired outcome, right? Well, I think yeah. When 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 you're watching it alone, at home or in a theater, um, you never have the opportunity to ask questions or right. talk to people. So yeah, I think that was the end game. Is just you know, you want to leave people thinking about a movie mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, not not getting onto some other conversation. Even though we're going to talk about the movie, it's still operating on that level. After seeing the movie, I think is difficult. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I knew I'd have questions, but I figured I'd hold them for today. <laughs> there you go. Um, there you go. So, but why why'd you make this movie? Well, a number of reasons actually drew me to to uh, to AM story. I think that um, you know the obvious one is, is his skills, his musical skills, I think his passion for music. Um, we all live in the, in the music industry and I think that um, it's, it's, um, it's pretty intoxicating actually to, 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 to meet people or talk to people or even just explore 
people who are so passionate about music and the arts and 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 the its ability to impact um, consciousness and uh, behavior and, and 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 all those things. So, I think uh, you know that was that was an operative plane throughout the entire um, process. Um, I think that his his trajectory, you know, as, as, as a dot moving through the universe and, and sort of the, the ups and downs that he experienced, I think were probably more dramatic than, than, than most people. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that the, the dramatic and the comedic actually aspects of his story are, are, are pretty unique to him. Um, I think that just the fact that he was able to plow through some pretty incredible situations, family situations, um, uh, addictions, uh, substance abuse, and 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 and, uh, and as well as just sort of making it, blazing a trail through the industry at a time when DJs really weren't, you know, they were in the back room, mm -hmm. the, you know, they're stuck in the corner. And right. as Anthony Bellinger said he's like they, they could have been a tape playing, you know, he's, <clears throat> they yeah. did they didn't have that sort of profile. So um, I think AM was responsible, largely responsible for changing that, um, and. And what that did to club culture and pop culture in general, um, I think that's a pretty incredible story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the tragic proportions of his of his life. They had a personal um, connection to me. I think just because you know we we in in the in the arts and entertainment industry, you know we. It's it's where a lot of the misfits end up, you know. Incredibly talented people, you know, in in, in whatever medium, but um, it it it's that talent's not necessarily nourished by, you know, perfect circumstances in somebody's life. They're they uh, sure they are uh, challenged uh, or or sort of um, <laughs> nuclearized in a way because of some challenging circumstances in their life, and it's and 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 they push forward the arts because of those you know as a reaction to some of those circumstances that they're going through and and i think that um a lot of times too many times it ends up in in, in tragic endings yeah. and uh and having lost a lot of friends and even people that i don't know but ad but admired um to those same circumstances um it really it, i i was intrigued about um getting into the forensics of, of, of those types of stories. Um, there are some common um, elements with all those stories. Um, so I wanted to explore that in a way that hadn't necessarily been explored before. When, you know, there are certain biographies ab about all those people that, mm -hmm. that um, you know, really put them up on the pedestal, but they don't really get into the, the nuts and bolts of how those things, how it ended up that way. Yeah, so I want to talk about those common elements a little bit. I know, so your your background, you're, you're a rock guy. Uh, we don't have time to list all of your credits because <laughs> it's only an hour show. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, you made, I would say, a, a big chunk of the important music videos from the, the early 90s to the alternative music era with Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and Queens of Stone Age. Um, and then, you know, some documentaries, with some of those folks as well, right? You made a Nirvana documentary. Yep. Um, and so, you know, notably, you know, you've worked with Kurt Cobain, with Scott Weiland, and and now with AM. Um, uh, so, can can you talk about those those common points? 
Yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> well, it's all, it, it, you know, it all starts with the family, I think. And, and uh, you know, they were missing something at home or they were abused at home or, or uh, you know, something wasn't just hitting it right. And a lot of, the, a lot of times, actually, that, that happened to be, um, you know, sort of in their genetic makeup. It mm -hmm. wasn't even just environmental. It was, it was, you know, the fact that they were OCD or ADHD um, and, and <laughs> I mean, I don't, I almost don't, I, I can't even think of one person I know who doesn't have ADHD who works in this industry. So it's like, those are all things that we're familiar with and we yeah. wrestle with, to be honest, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, that's why I think that some of the bonds that, that, that maybe I've had with musicians um, is so close is because, you know, there's an understanding of just diff each other's psyche. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I think that, um, you know, when you explore a lot of the artists that I work with, um, their lyrics, um, you know, you there's always something tragic, I think, in, 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 uh, in, in the artists, I think, that I really like, you know, or a particular insight into the human condition that, mm -hmm. that um, is able to, to illuminate, you know, some discrepancies between, you know, what they're saying and maybe what what a mainstream um, perception of certain things are, um, and they're incredibly personal as well. So I think that the the level of insight that they had into themselves and that A.M. actually had into himself, and he doesn't come out in lyrics for him, but it comes out in certain speeches that he gave mm -hmm. that 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 we have in the movie. Um, you know, that's uh, I think that sort of drive uh, that to to uh, for self knowledge and 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 just to to grasp the universe, um, uh, I think that it's um, you know the artists that I was lucky enough to work with. They had a, a particular gift for that, and 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 how to turn a phrase or or, and that that is what connected I think them to so many millions of people is that um, they were just able to articulate something uh, that that just hit this chord in people that that. You know, maybe people didn't even know what it was, but it just they spoke for those men that that many people. Yeah. Um, and I think in in, <laughs> in in a weird way, like the ADHD um, element, uh, it it shows up. It obviously shows up in pretty abrasive music, right? You know, it's like <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, whether it's song structure or, or, or whatever, and I think that 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 actually was expressed in in AM sets as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. He bounced. He was a pinball, you know, just and and that dialectic between genres and 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 themes and things like that um, was pretty interesting to explore, actually, in the, in, in the edit. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, you know, as a, as a DJ, there was a certain restlessness, I think, to AM and and um, and uh, something came out in the movie that I hadn't had never thought about, um, and it, there was a scene where he he essentially started a fight in the club by playing certain records um and uh, kevin i'm sure you've had the experience of of being able to move a crowd to certain emotions or certain kind of behaviors um i i think it's i think we kind of say you know jackson james says you know he when it came to the dance floor he was a yeah. puppet master and um you know he certainly had that way to either make it really fun or really aggressive or whatever it was that he was after mm -hmm. and um <clears throat> you know, I think the way that he knew how to combine musical elements to create that kind of emotion was, 
uh, you know, a revelation really. And the first time I saw him do certain things and create a certain type of energy in a room and I'd already been DJing for a long time and to, to see that actually happen, um, with just the way he was manipulating things was, was pretty awesome. And it's one thing to play certain songs in a row and create a theme or, or, you know, a certain sound you're looking for, Mm -hmm. but to take that and elevate it to the point where you're actually controlling the way people feel in the room. Um, and, and you're, you know, you're mixing quickly and you're, you're precise and you're sending a specific message. Yeah. Uh, at least for me, I had never seen anything like that until I saw I am. Well, it's interesting. So, you know, let's talk about you a little bit and, and I know you're a successful DJ. Um, and I haven't seen you play live, but I've, I've seen some of your stuff online and you know, you're, you're great. Um, <laughs> and I'm also uh, retired, but right. Yeah. retired. You may be our first retiree <laughs> on the show. So yeah. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but, um, but you know what what's stands out to me and you know I've known a lot of DJs you know over my career and some of them really well and I think you know the skill set for the most part is relatively narrow meaning most DJs can kind of do more or less the same thing right um, yeah, give or take. Yeah, give or take. Per, per, right, the skill sets are That's the same. A right. Generalization, but right. but it's a it's relatively narrow skill set, maybe compared to other professions. But you know, a lot of the innovation happens from my observation happens when one guy just shows other people something that maybe they hadn't thought of or didn't realize they could do. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of things had to go right uh, for for Adam, and they did. And I think, <coughs> you know. Coming into the mid two thousands, when I was playing in clubs, it was it was pretty much everybody was just playing hip hop. That was that was all anybody was playing. Yeah, um, and people were kind of afraid to break that that comfort barrier of only playing hip hop. I actually remember I I had a long time gig that I'd done for like ten plus years, and I remember playing a Prince record at this club, and they were so used to hip hop that they were like pissed off at me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like right. what's this guy doing? Yeah, Adam had really yeah. sort of shifted that entire thing because he was playing open complete open format um, and doing it in a really cool way and in a hip hop way Mm -hmm. so he was capturing that part of the audience and then also the other people that he was playing to and that that style was not popular at that point nobody really knew about it especially outside of the LA area Mm -hmm. nobody really was aware of this and I think we touch on it in the movie you know he did that mix for Power 106 and it was like the middle of the day and uh, it was supposed to be like up in the club, what he's playing up in the club. And, um, you know, he was really apprehensive about that uh, because, you know, Power was playing nothing but hip hop and R&B. Right. And he was going to go on there and play Leonard Skinner and Neil Diamond and, you know, all this stuff that he had been playing. And he was going to do it in a cool way, but he was nervous about it. couple days making edits because Adam never played clean versions of anything everything he played was right. was 
explicit version, right? Yeah. So we had to make a lot of these songs didn't have you know clean versions, or he just didn't have the time to get them all together. So we were editing this stuff together to take it there, and um, you know because I I did a lot of like editing at that time, so I was kind of helping him with that. And we were driving there, and he and this is something that like never really happened for him. He got super nervous about it, and he he didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. He wanted to turn the car around, and he's like, I'm I can't do this. It's gonna be whack. You know, and I'm like, no, you, you know, you have to do this. Like, this is important, you know, uh, yeah. for our profession, you know, for people to hear that there's a whole other style because internet wasn't the way it is now. You couldn't just share it on your Facebook page or whatever that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So uh, he went and he did it. And I had texted my, my buddy, uh, Jerry, shout out to White Matic. He's my buddy. And I, he had a big old antenna and everything. And I said, you know, so he had like perfect reception. I said, can you record this mix? It's from three to five. Just record it and you know i just wanted to have it basically yeah. Yeah. and uh so he recorded it and then we ended up uploading it to a serato forum board where every dj was and people completely lost their mind because mm-hmm. they had you know everybody was playing the same 100 songs mm-hmm. and here's this thing that is just completely different yeah. and i really feel that moment for the dj culture at that particular time shifted everything i mean it completely changed the game and opened up a whole uh you know a whole wave of open format music for like the next geez we were in that phase for five six years mm-hmm. and i really think it's you know there's other guys that were doing it but right. but that particular mix that that came out and hit uh you know kind of hit the internet really put us in that trajectory and adam was you know he was the biggest guy mm-hmm. and he was the coolest guy and you could easily access him you could look him up and you could see him you know with with you know celebrities and you right. could see that he was really doing it and doing huge parties and so i think all of the younger djs impressionable people they saw that and and it really kind of just changed everything there are a lot of people actually on on, when you go to the message boards too that didn't believe that that was actually he was doing it really yeah oh yeah i had to yeah i spent many hours defending him no i was 100 percent live you know (laughs) and and people didn't want to you know people didn't even know what a mashup was at that point or anything really and it was sort of a it was a complete Mm re-education yeah yeah so how did you guys connect and, and tell us about how you got involved with the phone? Uh, Kevin and I. Uh-huh. Um, so he started, he'd been working on the, on the movie and uh, uh, Jonathan Schechter, mm-hmm. uh, Schechter Green was, was involved at that time. And I was in regular contact with him. We're friends. And I kind of was like, so what's up, you know, what's up with the movie? You know, like I haven't heard anything and I guess he's been working on it for nah. uh, like six months at that point or something. And as it turned out, he was, yeah, (laughs) as it turned out, he was going in chronological order, you know, with his interviews. So he hadn't got to me. I'm sort of towards the end, you know? And so I just reached out to him and we set up an interview and uh, we sat down and we, I think we did like three hours or so. Mm. It was pretty long. First time. Yeah. And then we got to talking kind of after it and he's like, I really would love to have this stuff too. So he came back the next day and we did another. Whenever you wrap the cameras, it's always like, then the stories come out. So yeah. you, you have to keep the mic, everything yeah. uh, set up, even though you think you're you're faking, like you're actually boxing things up. Uh-huh. So we did, so we did a Scott couple days. So Scott was through all the time. Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's like, it's funny. It's like, you got to, you know, loosen up and get going, you know? Right, right. Right towards the yeah. end, I was feeling real comfortable <laughs> with him, you know, because it's like the first time you meet somebody and you're kind of, sure. uh, you know, getting used to the whole process. Plus you have everything in your face and. Kind of like this here. Yeah, and done yeah. a lot. Hadn't done a lot of those at that point, so I was kind of like, okay. Yeah. But uh, and then we did a second day, and then I would just check in with him. Uh, how's it going? You know, I was very curious about the project. I wanted it, you know, I wanted it to 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 be representative of my friends. So mm-hmm. um, we kept checking in, and uh, you know, I think uh, it's fair to say he and I get along pretty good. 
And um, so we uh, we just kept talking, and then eventually he he asked me to to come on board as a co-producer and help with some other elements like the uh, music end of it. And uh, what we and so we we would just get together and work on the movie, and I would try to give him insight. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much how I mean, it started. Kevin uh, has been invaluable throughout the whole process. I mean, I I I, I came to him late. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had other, I had a ton of other material that I was getting through that, which explains basically why the, the process is so slow. Sure. Um, you know, I got, I got AM's laptops and there was something like, you know, 50 to 70,000 stills on there and wow. five to 10,000 videos and, and other documents and, and, uh, um, you know, he, he lived a pretty full life, you know, and he had the, f- he had his foot on the gas every single day. Mm-hmm. So, um, but Kevin, you know, he really knew AM in and out. I think musically, he was he was really attuned to, you know, what he did sort of on the evolutionary scale that that distinguished AM from 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 others, uh, going backwards and forwards actually, mm-hmm. and and uh, and so and he's a, just an encyclopedia. He has you know, mine is a steel trap. So he he knows that he knows every single set and yeah. and I think that. Um, he also really wanted to make sure that the integrity of the film um, was what Adam deserved, you mm-hmm. know. And 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 he he um, you know, he kept me on my toes, and uh, and also just illuminated a lot of stuff that 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 was you know maybe a question in my mind, uh, or just I needed backup or something like that. And and so the scope of the story, I think that Kevin you know grasps, you know, the intimate as well as the the uh, sort of you know this, this not the superficial level but but the sort of the story that everybody needs to know mm-hmm. as well as the intimate details of of uh of how how Adam got to what to to where he did yeah you know i think i spoke up a lot you know like if 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 there was something i felt strongly about i would i'd make a case for it and i think that joel that- and, i think joel and kevin really respected that yeah. and th- these two, these two guys you know they're the type of guys that they will 100% hear you out. And we had a lot of very productive discussions, I feel like, um, about, you know, how we were presenting certain things and, and, and how it would turn out. And, uh, you know, that all goes to just trying to make the best movie possible, which was 100% uh, my number one goal with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to, to feel like Adam and, and, and to have that respect for, for who he was. And, yeah. and there's many aspects to that. It's not just as a DJ, you know. Right. Yeah. So, does that come naturally to you to just kind of say what's on your mind and and yeah, you know pretty. fight for what you? <laughs> yeah, I, I you know because I can imagine you know you're you're working with a director who's uh, experienced and we started you know, off a huge pretty, track record and yeah we st- you know I, I I sort of felt out the process I feel like a little bit I I would say something if I really you know if I really wanted to say something I would I would bring it up to him but I just think as the relationship evolved with with Kevin and with the editor, Joel Marcus is, you know, as, as that relationship evolved and you get to know people, you, you sort of feel like you can say more, you can mm-hmm. be direct. And Joel actually was the one that kind of really pushed that. Like, don't, don't sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. Like Kev's the same way, you know, don't, don't sugarcoat it. If you got something you want to say, just say it. So that kind of opened up the door for me to really, you know, um, if I felt strongly about something, then I would say something, but you know, 
I want to paint a picture that there was a bunch of things wrong that I had to fix or anything. I mean, they had the, <laughs> they had the no, story pretty much right. But yeah. if there were certain things, I, I would definitely speak up, you know. And then when you're doing a doc, there's there's so many different, it's operating on so many different levels. You know, you've got, you've obviously got that person's life. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you want the, the, you want all the facts to line up. You want it to be completely true and, 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 uh, and accurate. Um, and if there are bigger lessons to draw from certain things, um, whether it's artistically, um, in terms of what he's doing in, in music, or the impact of his addiction, uh, or his, you know, some of the skeletons in his closet on him, and how that, how other people might, you know, find a toehold in, 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 in that, that connects with them personally, um, then those opportunities sort of give you a little license to, to, to explore. But I think that in terms of having the facts down, it's imperative, obviously, if you're doing a bio on somebody, yeah. that that you're operating from that level, mm -hmm. and and uh, and having the people in his universe, whether it's family or friends, um, you know, sometimes you can get into in the situations where somebody's so close to them that they don't recognize other parts. Like I know I, there are dear friends of Adams mm -hmm. who had no idea that he went through some of the shit that he went through, and. And, uh, of course, yeah. And uh, and wouldn't believe it, and wouldn't even believe the necessarily the impact that it had on him later on in life, mm -hmm. um, w which was instrumental in in in, uh, in sort of disarming his ability to to fight back against certain certain things, and and lose those battles. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, if you trace the DNA from some of those things all the way back, you find some episodes early on in his life that were catastrophic, absolutely right. catastrophic. Yeah. And, um, and somebody who is, who's, you know, just ne knows the glory days, they're not going to have any idea or even any, any impulse to even look for that stuff. Yeah. I mean, obviously we tend to glorify people and especially people that have passed. Right. And we, we, you know, y you paint the rosy picture yeah. in memory, which, um, is understandable, but, but to your point, and I think, you know, the, the movie really gets into that almost from the opening, right you know it's it's uh it hits you with with some of those catastrophes that happened early on mm -hmm. um and the plane crash yeah so, absolutely which happened late yeah and people still didn't even recognize i mean he that happened 11 months before he died right people don't i mean cosmo baker says do you know anybody who's I, I don't know anybody who survived a plane crash mm -hmm. you know and and we right. don't. I mean, there's no way that we can really <coughs> even imagine the impact of something like that on somebody. Yeah. And uh, and and a lot of the people around him, well-intentioned people, you know, not this is not to you know put anybody on blast, but but people just weren't able to to imagine the impact of it on him, yeah. and and then do things or manage things that enabled him to maybe get around some of those issues, you know? Mm -hmm. So He was very strong-willed, too, so yeah. that sure. plays a role as well. Rebel Radio is supported by Wix.com. It's the easiest way to make your own website and not have it look like garbage. There's hundreds of templates that are easy for you to customize with drag-and-drop tools, you can have your own website for your business, your personal portfolio, your modeling career, you handsome devil. Whatever it is, it's easy and it's fast and it's free. Could you ask for anything more? Go to Wix.com today and sign up. 
Wix.com. One of the, the themes that stood out to me in the movie was um, this, he was painted as an obsessive, right? And it, and it, if I would do the injustice of telling the story, right? Like he was obsessive about his drug use and then he was obsessive about record collecting, sneaker collecting, his craft as a DJ, his performance schedule, right? Like whatever literally, he literally did. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how important is that to be successful in this line of work? I think it's what, you know, you, you can have a good career or you can have a great career. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's how much you sink into it. I think it even plays to even some of the smaller parts in the movie where it just talks about that one summer where that's all he did, locked right. himself in a room. I don't think he had any grand vision really at that point other than I'm going to put everything into this. And that's kind of how he did it. And I think, uh, you know, he, I think Kevin touched on it before. I mean, that guy was so busy. He did so much every single day. Mm-hmm. He'd be like, uh, yeah, come out, let's hang out today, you know, go up to his house. It was a, supposed to be like a, you know, him and I hanging out so or whatever, right? Out, yeah. And this was one of his lighter scheduled days. He had a million things going on. Oh, hold yeah. on one second. Let me go take care of this. And, oh, I got to call so-and-so. And, I gotta, and I'm like, man, this guy's like, but it was always like that, mm-hmm. you know? And I just think he just, he wanted to just do as much as possible, you know, bring it on. And, um, you know, he did that. And I think it had a lot to do with his success because he was just not afraid to put in the work, not afraid to fill his schedule, not afraid to, to say no to certain things, to the positive and the detriment, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think it played a big role for him. It's yeah. funny. I, I, uh, you know, thinking about having kids and, and, and how you'd be as a parent and how, and then you start to think about how your parents perceived you as a sure. kid or me as a kid. You know, I'd be in the dark room for 36 hours straight. I would be in an edit for seven days straight. I'd be sleeping under the edit table and, you know, order food in, get a couple hours of sleep on the linoleum floor, wake up, oh my God, I got to keep cutting. And then it's like, and then I just basically collapse at right. some point later on in the day. And, and a lot of times you're just sitting on your bed with headphones on, completely blowing out your ears, or playing guitar for hours on end. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody po- peeked into your room, they can just think that you're just fucking off, just wasting time, right? But it's like that, uh, there was an obsessive quality. And I think that anybody basically who, who is in a band that succeeds or even it maybe doesn't succeed, doesn't have that, you know, the stars just don't align, but they are still just as committed. Um, that drive, I think, is imperative to have if you're, gonna, if you're going to do anything. I mean, a lot of times it's just stroke of luck mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe somebody's, you know, got perfect bone structure and shit, and shit just happens. And, right, sure. You know, and... and the uh, right family. Perfect, right Relative, doctor. You know, you know. Whatever, yeah, it's yeah. like, and, 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 and they get pushed, you know, into the, into the sweet spot. But, um, yeah, drive is a funny thing, you know, in terms of... Because of, uh, it, it expresses itself in, in, in so many different ways. And and really only the person who's like right in the pocket in the driver's seat. He doesn't even know where it's going, but he knows that it's it's you know he's answering the call right now or she's answering the call right now. So with that in mind, and I we sort of touched on this earlier, but but how much do you think that drive and addiction are linked? <clears throat> I and this is I because I'm not. My grandfather died of, al- of alcoholism. Um, and I know a lot of people in that world. I don't personally, you know, I can't speak to like where, you know, those things sort of, um, 
that. Yeah, I mean, I we guess, know, I guess we know the science doctor, of it, right? But but I I I asked everybody that I interviewed, you know, where uh, who was who was dialed into that world, um, you know, where does the line? Because everybody is, I mean, in this world anyway, it's you know, there's a recreational use, you know, where does recreational use turn into substance abuse? Right. And for for almost you know to the person, it was you know. It really depends on what's going on before, like what they've inherited, yeah. and uh, and I think that you know the, the 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 ferocity of that issue, whether it's a mommy or daddy issue, or you know, um, you know, just not getting the attention or being hurt, mm-hmm. you know, by 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 abuse, you know, like concussed or you know mm-hmm. some sort of. It just seems like it, it it seems so arbitrary and so random, and and. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the the science about um, addiction uh, is that there's a, there, it it exists in the genetic makeup. Right. Um, there is a story in the film or a question in the film about Adam's paternal um, roots. Mm-hmm. You know whether his addic- addicted father is actually his father, mm-hmm. um, and if it's not, then it's just completely it's the science of that is not necessarily genetic but it's environmental as right. well so um yeah i mean it's i don't know what it is <laughs> but it's incredibly sad i mean we just lost scott wyland mm-hmm. you know to to uh it's like the regularity of this story is is so depressing yeah in a way um and you really have to admire the fight. I know. I know that people who who endure those sorts of issues, they fight it every single day. You have to fight it on a day-to-day basis. And they're, um, you know, the tenacity that's required. It's uh, it's pretty legendary. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, you mentioned it, but kind of take us back to those days on the linoleum floor. Like, how'd you get started <laughs> as a filmmaker, and what what drew you to that? Uh, it's funny, actually. I I uh, I, I I grew up partly in L.A. and then I moved to Mammoth in junior high. And uh, my my parents and I ski raced and you know did all the stupid action sports basically that you would do as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Ski, surf, snowboard. And uh, my one Christmas, my parents gave us kids. I have a brother and sister. They gave us all Super 8 camera. I hijacked that mm-hmm. and was just started doing ski films and skate films. And and this is junior high and high school basically. Yeah. And um cutting them up they wouldn't even necessarily be shown anywhere but but i still have all the reels at home and you know cool uh i'd race go back grab my camera go back up shoot all my friends that are coming down the no course. gopro yeah. back then no gopro yeah it's it's, it's super eight film yeah right? so uh i just kept on that course i was actually in a couple warren miller films that he shot in mammoth uh and uh it wasn't even a conscious thing but i knew that that dude had a cool job mm-hmm. <laughs> Traveling around the world, narrating his films, and and uh, and so I basically just started on a trajectory, basically following his following his path, and then at one point, um, just totally by mistake or by accident, I got into doing narrative films and experimental films, and uh, won a student academy award uh, for the region for California, mm-hmm. and uh, and then just got pulled into music videos again like completely by accident like every single thing that happened in, in you know in in my i guess my film career was almost by accident even though i i always had a camera in my hand but um what, what was your first music video first music video i did for um sonic youth mm-hmm. shadow of a doubt yeah 
really lucky. Kim was in a movie that I was doing. Kim Gordon, the yeah. one of the singers for, for Sonic Youth. So uh, we were doing a movie, and then uh, there was like 10 seconds of black in this section that we were doing. And the band is like, you know, that's a really good place for, you know, some band footage to go. And it was one of her speak-sing songs, you know. The, so we just threw them some VHS footage, totally terrible quality, and mm-hmm. it worked, and it basically became a closet classic mm-hmm. <laughs> on MTV. Yeah. yeah. And, and so um, do you remember that feeling of, you know, your first paid gig or getting that paycheck for making your art? Yeah, it's sort of like the people are gonna pay me for this. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, it's funny. I didn't. I know a lot of people actually capitalize on that. I didn't do that. I was like, whoa, shit. that just means I have more money. If somebody's gonna pay me, that means I can actually have a higher budget because I can put my money into getting a crane or getting a helicopter. You know, some something. Um, I always just sort of threw it back into the into the mix. Yeah. And uh, and I wasn't doing. I was the bands that I was doing were all like. They were the brats at the labels, right? Um, right. They they had to do music videos because contractually they were obligated to, but they weren't getting the the Motley Crue budgets or the Bon Jovi ju- budgets or anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I stayed away from hair like that. <laughs> <laughs> so and and when was there a moment when you realized like this is this is my career now? Like I'm I'm going to do this. I just never considered anything else to mm-hmm. be honest. Yeah, it was just. Um, I mean, I went to film school, so mm-hmm. there was definitely a commitment at that level. Um, just, I think, to the arts, photography, you know, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time in the darkroom as well and shoot shoot stills. Yeah. So I really didn't do anything else. I I, I read a lot. I I shot. And I basically just lived around film somehow mm-hmm. and, and surfed and skied and snowboarded and, you know, it's a good life. Yes. <laughs> nice. Kevin Scott, how'd you get started DJing and, and what was your first gig? I think it I think it's in my blood because my dad was a DJ he did like high school parties playing 45s nice. in the 50s. Wow. <laughs> you know so I think it's sort of it's in my blood but shit. yeah exactly. Um, well I uh, you know back in like the early 80s I used to have I mean we called them ghetto blasters I don't mm-hmm. know what the proper name is for them but yeah. you know I had one of those dual like deck with a pause boombox. Boombox yeah. 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 And I used to just make pause tapes off the radio. Mm-hmm. And I was real into it, and I kind of liked the way things fit together. And then uh, I have a brother, and he's uh, he's ten years older than me, and he got married. I was in his wedding. It was the first time I ever saw uh, some of the DJ mix two records together. And I looked at my dad, and I was like, "That's what I want to do." And I was like fourteen. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad, he was a <clears throat> he was a banker and a, and, a, and a lawyer. That's what he ended up being. And he kind of was trying to teach me a lesson. And he's like, "Okay, so this is how we're going to do it." Because he he was you know my parents were pretty successful at that point so we'll buy you the equipment every gig you do you pay back 50 percent. you know like basically trying to teach me a life lesson essentially but giving me also a chance to to see if you know i really did want to do this Mm -hmm. and so uh, i got the equipment i started doing gigs Uh, i did them all through high school up through college and um i i I went to uh i went to college to be a lawyer like my dad and take over his practice Mm. and um uh he had some illness at that point um, he had a stroke and it was like a real eye-opening experience for me and I kind of put everything on hold and I was like let me let me try to do this music thing and see if I can make this work because mm-hmm. I really like this this is what keeps me up at night this is what wakes me up in the morning and I don't know about this lawyer stuff like this doesn't look like a good ending you know mm-hmm. and um, so I just started pursuing it and uh, um, I think my first gig was like just a high school backyard party I was terrible 
it takes back then it took time there yeah. was no yeah. there was no tutorial on youtube and and there was like really you, you know you had to you had to learn all your records you had to get money together to buy them you had to learn how to use the equipment i mean it was tough were you, know? you conscious of the fact that it was terrible at the in yeah the, at it the made party? me want to get better yeah, yeah yeah i mean you know you go to a party and things don't work out the way they do in your head prior to the party you know mm-hmm. you have a certain expectation and it doesn't happen and uh you go i need to get better and and, and then when was the first time you the what was the first gig where you felt like you'd you'd gotten there? Um, so I started in you know like officially in like '88. I think mm-hmm. around like the early '90s, rave music became really popular, and I really loved it. Like I was super into that stuff. And um, like, what were you playing? Like, like uh, you know, I, th- I remember like when Human Resource Dominator came out, that kind of music, which mm-hmm. was like really aggressive, you know, techno. Like basically, it was like aggressive stuff, and it was all coming from the UK, and it was like really eye-opening music to me, and I was interested in it. Um, and um, so I would just spend all my money on those records and I would just practice like crazy. style of music for me and then I was just I remember practicing mixing like hours and hours on end until I got good at it mm-hmm. and it was right around that time I started doing you know more parties and and um, you know by then I was in just starting college mm-hmm. so I made a conscious effort to like get involved with the fraternities and stuff and start doing their parties and um, you know you if you can do <laughs> if you can do a frat party where anything goes and you can get through that and, and rock it. You know, everything else feels pretty easy because yeah. it's really no rules, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's basically kind of how I started. And then I just never really wanted to grow up. Never really <laughs> wanted to stop. I just, I was like, I like this. Like, this this is for me. Yeah. And um, I just kept at it. And, and uh, you know, eventually it, it turned into something really good for me. And was it just like, uh, <clears throat> was there a, a big break, so to speak? Or was that just like a little step each time? There was a big break, but there was a lot of incremental breaks before that. So, um, you know, you kind of you kind of go through. I think like in in the mid '90s, I got my first club gig, mm-hmm. and um, that was consistent money, and it was at a quality place, and it was like where was that? Uh, well, it was in Orange County. It was called Off Campus Pub. It was right across from Cal State Fullerton, mm-hmm. and they had like a Thursday night there, and it was like a college night. And I kept playing there every week and eventually built it up to where there was like a line around the block. And a lot of that was cheap drinks, but I like to think I had a little something to do with it. <laughs> sure. But, you know, uh, we built that up and, and that was like, you know, that was like my first uh, real gig where it was really solid. And then from there, I just kept trying to do more stuff. The big break came when I met Adam, I think. That was a real education. Um, How'd you meet? So I was making records. I got into uh, into uh, basic production. I was making vinyl records for DJs, and I was uh, it was a company I was trying to start, and uh, I was shipping them all over. And I one of the things I did was I shipped them to all of the radio guys, especially the LA radio guys. So I knew Vice mm-hmm. and, and some of these other guys, and I was sending them the records. And Vice hit me up one day, says, uh, "Hey, my my buddy Am, he wants to get some of your records because he'd been buying them, mm-hmm. and Am liked free shit." So he's like, let me put me in contact with that guy. Let, sure. me, let me get some free records. So, what, what kind of records are you making? 
Uh, they were like compilation records. So yeah. they had like intro outros for, and then I did like some party breaks, like ultimates kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I had uh, I had a company that basically had like six different labels. So mm-hmm. we did Fat Wax mm-hmm. reruns, fill okay. in the gap, crate savers. Like we had a whole line of different, and each record was a little bit different in style. Yeah. And so I was making all of those and and pressing them and distributing them. And I mean, it was a real, you know, that was that ate up all my time that I wasn't DJing. I was doing that. And um, and he wanted the records, and so I was like, uh, I I hadn't heard of him, I didn't know who he was, right. because you know, like again, we talk about their social media wasn't like you didn't know who he was, mm-hmm. and Vice was like, trust me, this is the guy you want to take care of. Mm-hmm. So we drove out to meet him, and the, I mean, he's larger than life. He was larger than life, like his personality, the way he was, everything about him, that big booming voice and that charisma, and uh, I was like, this guy's pretty cool. Brought mm-hmm. him out a box of records. He gave tickets to like a Jay Z after party. He's like, here you go, bro, come down, you know. And um, from there, uh, AOL Instant Messenger was what basically <laughs> fueled our friendship. Uh, we would stay up uh, all night talking on AOL Instant Messenger, sending music MP3. MP3s was, you know, pretty new. The you know, but we were sending music back and forth. You know, like we were really into a lot of the same kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, 80s music. He loved rave music as well. We touch on that in the mm-hmm. movie. Um, and uh, we just became fast friends. Like, and uh, had a lot of common interests. And also at that time he was uh, dating Nicole Richie, and um, you know I think a lot of his friends were single, and I was married, mm-hmm. so I was a safe friend. So she didn't mind me uh, right. coming over and hanging out with him, and so uh, so we spent a lot of time together at that point, and uh, and our friendship grew uh, grew quick. Mm-hmm. You know it's interesting. You, I, 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 li- I like a lot of the line of what you're asking about in terms of like trying to crack the code on on uh, obsession and yeah. and and. Uh, and what those things are that really turned on, you know, it, it helped evolve or accelerate. Um, Adam practiced like a motherfucker, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that, uh, you know, even going back to that, uh, your first gig and, and other things that we all experience, you know, throughout. You know, there are some black and blue days. Uh, and it's, that's why actually sports is an analogy might even be act- action sports like when you first start in a snowboard it's there you know you're bruised so bruised you know, I know that's why and every time I, you get up is like that's awesome and you know and, and yeah it's just this weird this weird uh dichotomy where you know you're getting the shit beat out of you but um it's just it's such a charge you know and so when did that happen for you as a filmmaker uh I think it's funny. Uh, my my thing was knowing, seeing films, experiencing films on a way that um, you know maybe music speaks to other people, mm-hmm. and and seeing that it can resonate in a in a particular way in me, and and wanting to basically create those situations where I can turn on other people mm-hmm. as well. Obviously, you never meet them in, in a way that you do as a as a musician playing live, but. Um, just being able to, you know, mess with the structure and the architecture of things as well as the content and the themes and all those, well, how those things sort of synthesize. And being in a couple rooms where, you know, my films were were playing and feeling that, it's like, all right, <coughs> I'm on to something, you know. And, and uh, I even had, an <coughs> when I was showing, it wasn't even my senior thesis film, but another film um, in a, theater probably like three or four hundred people and uh i i got under the television 
head's skin. He stood up and argued with me for like half an hour and then finally walked out. Because of something on the screen? Yeah, because I, I, I stood by why I was doing something. It was mm-hmm. like, he's like, you have to make film for other people. And I was like, no, I don't really. Like, I have faith in myself. If, if I'm going to dig it, yeah. I have faith that you're going to dig it too. And he's like, that's impossible. And it was like, it was sacrilege. And in the mm. end, the entire audience basically applauded me and <laughs> the professor walked out. So it it just, like some of those things, you know, restore, that, that could have gone a completely different way, sure. you know? And and uh, and I was lucky. Um, but I feel like that, you know, wanting to, ki- music does it in a way that's just so, so, you know, um, quiet it's its impact is so quiet in a way even though we're obviously dealing with sound Mm -hmm. but um the universal nature of just being able to connect to people and to 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 try to do that on film is is uh i think one of my greatest that's what i strive for anyway so that's so interesting you say that because you know your career like um i don't don't take this the wrong way but you're you're kind of a creative for hire Mm -hmm. what i mean is like other than those early films, it's not like you're making stuff and then going out and trying to sell it. Sure. Right? So you're making music videos where the band or the label hires you in advance. You know, you've done a ton of uh, com- commercials. Correct me, but, you know, AT&T, Coca-Cola, like big brands. Yep. And they pay you to tell their stories, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, so I'm interested in how you balance those things, right? Because if if you've got this feeling that if I dig it, other people are going to dig it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, they're your work for hire in, in a lot of those instances. So how do how does those work together? Yeah. Balance that balance is, is, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't work, you know, and, and you get in fights and you, you end up taking your name off the project or, yeah. or, or whatever. But, you know, ideally it, uh, <coughs> you know, you can, you can, there's a meeting of the minds and they hire you because they know that, you know, it's no secret that certain directors are strong-willed and strong-minded. And, and Is that your re- reputation? Um, I'm not a screamer. I'm quietly that way, but, mm-hmm. but I, there are other people that are more emphatic about it, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they, they, they run their sets like Napoleon. And, and uh, you know, oddly enough, those pe- the, that behavior is sort of rewarded in, in, in our industry, which right. is sort of mystifying. But Well, it makes you maybe seem like more of a genius because people can't, they can't work, work with you. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know. There's a very strange talk about parental issues, you know, <laughs> coming, sure, coming out. It's like it, there's a pathology there that's that's uh, almost universal among a particular strain of directors. But um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a funny balance, and 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 at different times of my life, I've 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 gravitated more towards commercials or or, or away from them because that's typically where those conflicts are expressed the right. most, you know. Yeah. Um, bands typically are. I I can connect with bands on that level, and and you know we see see see, see things the same way, and then you know we're sort of this force that's working against you know some of the more commercial instincts. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then I started working more in branded, the branded world, like like because friends of mine were you know ran DC Shoes or mm-hmm. Quicksilver or, or Insomniac, and 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 then you're just working with a brand. Yeah. Throughout, it's not a thirty second commercial. So it's not as toxic as as you know it can get with right. those tor- sorts of jobs, and um, and then you're really just pushing an aesthetic or or a way of life, you know. Right. And um, 
and you're either on board with that brand or you're not in terms of what they're doing and then and then the the, the question is just how to do the best work you know to, to push that forward so given that experience working with brands um wh what do you wish more brands understood um i think that there are rewards in risks in taking risks, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the corporate mentality is always, you know, you're going to, you're, you're looking for a formula, you know, it worked for this, this yeah. situation or this brand. So it's got to work for us. Let's bottle some of that up and, you know, do it sort of like we did, like they did, but a little different. And, and instead of really like looking for the, for, a, uh, an original way in, you know, that was successful because, they didn't do it like anybody else did it mm -hmm. and so take that out take that opportunity to to uh you know repeat that <laughs> you know the yeah. fact that they didn't repeat anything and and uh um i mean there are footnotes on everything so you can you can sort of um you can qualify some of those comments but sure. but um i think that uh, yeah, just I think the risk-averse nature of of, <coughs> of of brands and 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 you know the more money there is, obviously the 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 more freaked out people get. Yeah. And um, and it should be the opposite, I think. I mean, that's how I've conducted my life. It's like, oh, I got money now. I can take some. I can take some risk. You know, I can right. put it into the AM doc. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, but yeah, I mean, they tend to think the stakes are higher, right? So they yeah. have to be safer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've been making films now for a couple of decades and I think, you know, looking back, I looked back at some of your early stuff and, you know, it definitely, I think, uh, there was that MTV style, mm -hmm. which I think you helped to define. Um, and how, so how has the craft of storytelling changed? You know, we've talked a lot about how music's changed, both on the production and consumption side. Um, what about in, in film? How has that changed? Um, well, it's sort of exploded, I think, in terms of you know the digital universe. The fact that so many people have cameras now and 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 are adept at using them and 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 are interested in telling stories in a particular way um, that's unique to them. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and I think that. You know, on on the distribution front, the fact that so many outlets are there now, then there's an opportunity to see, you know, for those things to actually f find find the light in the yeah. universe. So, um, and I think that, you know, the the craft of filmmaking is, um, I mean, there's some pretty incredible people making making stuff now, you know, and. Uh, but there's so much <laughs> mm -hmm. that you know you wonder about that volume but then it it's not the only time there's a there there's a there's i have a reaction to that is is when you you know when everybody's thrown into this sort of this the horse race of box office revenues and things like that and 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 to my mind um you know money is one currency but there are a lot of other currencies at work mm -hmm. and i think that uh you know the fact that um, you know the, the the creative currency. Um, you know now it's it's uh, it's 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 good economy, <laughs> I think. Yeah. You know because there's so much work and there's you know the 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 ease at which people can make stuff is mm -hmm. uh, pretty astonishing. Like and, and so how how have your influences changed? I mean, you know I get the sense you know you started 
making movies about something you loved, which was sports, and then presumably, you know, you, you're in a uh, flannel shirt, right? So you, <laughs> you come in looking like the the grunge guy, and that was a lot of your early stuff. And so, but you know, now you've made this this AM movie, and I know you did a bunch of work with um, with Hard and with Insomniac. Um, I'm guessing maybe not your style of music that that your go to. Hard more than Insomniac, okay, for sure. Fair I mean, enough. I think their lineups are yeah are harder. So yeah, um, and I think you know. So do you still? When we get in the car, like, what's in there? Sonic Youth, or, or what, <laughs> what do you listen to? There is actually there is. Uh, I just I got the the whole collection of of uh, I don't know, not, not necessarily bootlegs, but but stuff that hadn't been released before that um, that it gets played a lot. Cool. Sonic, Sonic Youth. But, I mean, it goes all over the map. And I think, actually, uh, you know, when you're younger and you're not as efficient, you, you, have, you really have to do one thing at a time, work mm -hmm. on one film for six months or a year or whatever. Um, now, you know, I can have a dozen different things going on. And I just like to wake up every day and go to sleep every day, you know, with with one of those projects in my mind. And, and I, d I don't have to be as... as uh, locked into one as as I was in the past mm -hmm. and um, yeah I, I think that um, just being able to play in that sandbox I think is just that's more what I'm into mm -hmm. necessarily you know just the fact that I pick up a camera every day and shoot something and, and uh, even if it's just for a couple shots you know yeah. um, I just I, it's there's there I guess there's back to the ADD thing you know it's it's uh, you know that sort of pinball aspect mm -hmm. I guess of, of, of being in that world mm -hmm. um. so Kevin let's talk about those um, pressures that Kevin was talking about to kind of uh, conform to what's expected right so you are um, retired as a DJ but but you were telling me earlier that um, you know when your career started picking up and you start traveling uh, there's a pressure to play a certain format a certain type of music Sure. That wasn't necessarily the stuff that you're really into. That's right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so sort of carrying on from where we were talking about with the big break at that time, Adam kind of brought me into his world and sort of showed me the ropes and stuff and uh, eventually had me uh, he, when he opened LAX uh, just right around the corner from here. Mm -hmm. um, he had me as his resident DJ, which was a pretty bold choice, I feel like, for him at that time. He get a lot of people that were hoping to be there and he sort of went out uh, you know outside the box took a risk like we're talking about and went with me and um you know that was like a first big break for me and that led to traveling which we were talking about a little bit earlier and when the traveling thing started with dexter when he started that whole thing um you know we were we were sort of being flown to these cities as like a savior mm -hmm. almost right mm -hmm. so they have these cities where not a lot's going on they want to showcase this new style that we've been talking about right and we're kind of the guys to come out there and do that 
So it's kind of cool in a way, but the crowd, you know, the people booking us know about this and that's what they want for their venue, Mm -hmm. but the crowd has no idea, right? So we would get there and try to basically do what we're doing in Hollywood or LA and there'd be nights where it would just completely fall flat because they're looking at you like, this guy's from LA, what what is he playing? Like, this is not what we're into. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was, there was nights like that where it was like, you know, boy, I sure would like to just go back to LAX in LA where everybody (laughs) knows the routine and knows what we play. And here I am in wherever, uh, Kansas City, and they just don't get it. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm emptying the dance floor, you know, and you're, you're trying to, like, hold that whole thing together, you know. And, um, you know, there was, you know, there's definitely some, some tough nights, but there was other times, too, in some cities where they really grabbed onto it. Yeah. And they were, you know, you'd have those magical nights where the crowd got it. They understood and they knew it was something different and they were into it. Mm-hmm. And those, those were the fun ones. And there was plenty of those, too. Um, but you know, you never quite knew what you were going to get. Right. Sure. Sure. From city to city. So, so how do you balance those pressures? Right. Like you're obviously, it's kind of what we're talking about, right? You're, you're being hired for your creativity. Right. There's also pressure to conform to what's expected. Right. And you know, the right answer may not be obvious or maybe somewhere in between, or maybe one way, one day and one way, another, like what's that process for you? I mean, for me, um, I just try to keep in mind, like, why they wanted me there in the first place. Um, and, you know, maybe that, that enlightening for the crowd isn't going to happen the night that I'm there. Mm-hmm. But they want to start a process. They want yeah. something to happen there. They want to change the way things work there. So I'm a part of that process. Mm-hmm. So I just went in, you know, with, okay, this is what they're hiring me to do. This is what I'm going to come in and do. And, um, you know, it, it could get a little hard on you when, when it's not working great. Um, but, you know, you got to stick with, with the plan, basically. And uh, for me, you know, I tried to, to stay as creative as possible. Um, but, you know, the, the grind, you know, there, there's nights where you're there and you're like, oh, not this again. And, uh, and you're just going to play what you know works because mm-hmm. you just want it to be a good night. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, get back to your, you know, hotel room and be like, ah, oh, it sucked, you know. And, <laughs> and you know, so th- there, there's that sure. pressure too. Yeah. It's just a balancing act. I think a lot of it really had to do with my day that day mm-hmm. you know because like when you're travel djing you know you're you're getting up early in the morning because you're usually flying to the east coast right you got a time change same day you got uh, you know it's a long day mm-hmm. uh you leave early in the morning and you get there and the sun's down and it's time to eat dinner and you're like what happened to the day you know and then you got to go dj and and uh some days you're in the mood for it and you're ready and other days you're like oh you know and so i guess a lot of it depended on just sort of how i felt that day how the crowd was reacting and mm-hmm. just trying to make it a balancing act make the best of every gig that you can and it's not easy honestly it's not it i didn't find it easy and after a bit of time when uh, you know when when my wife got pregnant and we had a kid and i just sort of started to kind of weigh what was more important for me it was a pretty obvious choice like I think I'd much rather be home, mm-hmm. you know, with my wife and help raise my daughter than, than be out here, you know, rolling the dice every night in some small city, you yeah. know, so. So before, th- how how big did it get for you before that? Um, it, it got pretty big. I mean, we were kind of in the early travel days, so mm-hmm. we were getting some good gigs and good residencies. I think at one point I had like nine residencies around the country. I was doing some big events. I was working for you know, Harris, Caesars, I uh, was doing stuff like the, did some winter Olympics parties and you nice. know, it was going, it was going well. Um, Is there a best night that stands out to you? Well, you know, uh, yeah, there, yeah, there, which actually, uh, <laughs> I'll do a little name dropping for you. So. <laughs> there, before I started traveling, the be- the best night that I remember was at LAX, Adam, for, 
I had some other gig, and he's like, I really need you to do the Sweet 16 at LAX. Mm -hmm. And it was like on an off night. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. And then as it got closer, I was like trying to put m music together. And I'd never really done a Sweet 16 in my life, so I had no idea what these kids were going to be into. And I remember texting him, and I was like, yeah, you know what, man? Can, can we get like somebody else to do it? Because I, I just don't know if like that's really in my wheelhouse, you know? And he's like, uh, no, you're doing it. It's for Jimmy Iovine's daughter. <laughs> and I've assured him that you will do a good job. Nice. And I, uh, at that point, I was petrified, like, mm -hmm. oh, my God. You know, yeah. so I'm trying to put this thing together. So we, we get there and it's it's uh, it, it seemed unusually tight there. Well, come to find out the Secret Service were there because Arnold Schwarzenegger, the then governor, was there to sing happy birthday to Jimmy's daughter. Mm -hmm. So can you he, do that? Can you continue? Can I? Can I let's hear how that sounds. <laughs> <What's> that? <laughs> how did that sound? Uh, <laughs> well, ridiculous. he sort of, he just sort of, yeah, <laughs> I don't do impressions, but he just kind of kicked it off and then, and then they jumped into it. And then immediately following that, like Jimmy's assistant came over and said, can you please play Family Affair by Dr. Dre and Mary J. Blatch? And I was like, sure, you know, no problem. That's a crowd pleaser. Mm -hmm. no, no big deal. So they get done with happy birthday and I kind of get the cue. I start the record and I'm turning around, like looking for other stuff to play on in my laptop. And my buddy who's with me, he, he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, you got to look at the middle of the dance floor. And I look up, and it's Dr. Dre and Mary J. Blige dancing together nice. to the record they made. And, a, and like 250 16-year-olds around them going nuts. That was, without question, the most surreal thing I've ever seen as a DJ. Like, I was, I, I just tried to, you know, uh, take a snapshot in my head of that, that moment because I was like, ah, it's really probably not going to get much cooler than this. Yeah. And it, it never really did. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, pretty, that's pretty high bar. <laughs> never, never really did. The only other thing that was really cool one time was uh, LAX, a lot of cool stuff happened with celebrities and stuff. But, you know, I'm a, I, my brother is, is, like I mentioned before, he's 10 years older than me. So mm -hmm. I grew up with a lot of classic rock in the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, very much into like ACDC, Alice Cooper, Van Halen, Rush, like all that kind of stuff. So I had a kind of a, a jump start on music. So I was really into that stuff because that was the 70s, you know, with my brother. And is one there, night. Is there one song that stands out? One song? Oh, man, I'm the guy that can't narrow it down that well. <laughs> but like, as it, but thinking back then, was there a song at the Tom time? Tom Sawyer. Okay. Yeah, without question, Tom Sawyer. Yeah, now that, now that you say that, yeah, Tom Sawyer probably. That was the song. So I was at I was DJing at LAX again, and I get a tap on the shoulder, and I turn around, and it's David Lee Roth, and I, you know, I was kind of at that point I'd been playing there for a while, and I wasn't really getting very starstruck anymore, 
you know, because there was a lot of people showing up, mm-hmm. Prince and Jamie Foxx and all these other people. But David Lee Roth was not somebody I expected to be <laughs> standing there. And he's like, he didn't seem like a clubber. No, <laughs> no, uh, he wasn't like, you know, he, <laughs> he wasn't at the clubs all the time. And, and I was like, I turn around and I just, I must've had this look on my face, like, holy crap, you know? Yeah. And he goes, Hey man, I really like what you're doing with them turntables. <laughs> and I was like, wow, th- there's an impression by him. <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, thanks. You know? And, and we did, a, we took a picture together. I said, I, and I normally never ask for that stuff. But I was like, can we take a picture together? Cause nobody's going to believe this, you know? Mm-hmm. And it took a picture and we took a picture together. And then he looks at me and he goes, okay, I want you to do the diamond Dave face. And we did the, you know, the open mouth, like, <laughs> you know the big open mouth face you can't see it on the podcast but yeah. and uh yeah i did the the big open mouth one and we did that and i still have that picture it's in my house and that nice. that's a that's reminiscent of a really cool night that's cool that was that was a i was definitely starstruck for sure so why do you think uh as you said you know am there's a lot of guys who could ask to be the resident what what do you think he saw in you i think we were really different from one another mm-hmm. you know he's very active always scratching um you know, very quick. And then I think in me, he saw somebody that was very solid, very consistent. I was very much into mixing and blending records in a, in a, in a certain yeah. way. I think he really liked that sound. And I also think that there was the, the factor of, you know, having a hundred DJs that all expected or wanted the gig and him sure. sort of having that dilemma of like, who do I choose? I'm going to piss off the other 99 right. or whatever. Right. But if, if you, if Might you chose well piss me, off all hundred. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or, or just say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm throwing a total curveball here. Yeah. And I do remember specifically right after I started there, um, there was a DJ that was in LA all the time, um, went by the name of Gomez mm-hmm. and, um, uh, Gomez, if you don't know him is, is pretty outspoken guy. He says what's on his mind. And, um, I guess he was there and he was like listening by the front door to my set for like an hour and a half. And he, he came up to me afterwards and he's like, man, I was listening to you play and I was getting pissed off. It's like, I was just getting pissed off. Like this guy is up there playing a CD. He's like, and then I, then I came closer and I watched you and he goes, it was like surgeon, surgical precision, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just like with your mixes, you're just so clean the way you did it. And it clicked for me. Like I got it. I figured it out. Cause I think he was kind of looking at it. Like why this guy get the gig? Like I never even seen this guy before, Mm -hmm. you know, never heard of him. And, and, I think he sort of, he kind of saw what I was doing and what Adam was thinking at the time, which was let's give LA something a little bit different. And I think that's, I think that's why he chose me. And, and, um, also, uh, I was, uh, really, I'm very much into programming. I think it's the number one, most important thing. You'd be the greatest scratcher or mixer in the world, but if you can't program, you're going to, you're crap. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, I think it's really about the crowd. I think it's really about playing the right records at the right time. And I was, re- that was always number one for me. Um, so programming is very interesting. And I remember going to some of Adam's gigs and, and questioning his programming. Mm-hmm. I was never really afraid, kind of like with the movie process, to, to tell him when I thought something sucked. Mm-hmm. And so I remember like kind of questioning him on it. Like, why did you play that Black Eyed Peas song? You know, or, what, or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. I'm not, that's not a specific example. Don't be mad. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, why did you play that specific record at that point? It seems like... We, didn't, we don't hate the Black Eyed Peas. No, not at show. all. Not at all. No, Adam was a fan. Uh, but, you know, of, of the stuff while he was alive. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he feels about the stuff after. But, <clears throat> uh, but anyway, he you know i would just question him about that and go oh yeah huh you know like sort of gave him a different uh mindset for you know how to put things together because you know if something didn't work for him he's like okay you know 20 seconds later i'll switch to something else where Mm -hmm. i was more like well you could build way more energy if you just picked the right records during that and didn't have that 20 seconds of 
yeah. you know, crap. Yeah. And so I think he was interested in that. I don't think, I think he had a lot of people that were playing the same kind of style as him in LA. And here's this guy and he's just nothing like me. Mm-hmm. And I think that intrigued him. I, I, that's my, I mean, he, he basically told me that, but mm-hmm. th- I'm, you know, I'm also expanding upon what, what he told me. I think that's pretty much the reason. Yeah. Kevin Kersak, is there a record that got you into music? Oh, it's funny. What? Oh, <laughs> well, the Ventures, probably. Yeah, the Hawaii Five O. <laughs> wow, the Hawaii Five O. It's one of my first, first, uh, first forty fives. Yeah. I think, um, you know, early 80s in L.A., uh, that turbocharged a lot of stuff for me. X. Yeah. Uh, actually, at that point, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd been through the Clash and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the Ramones and, and, and all that stuff. But I think that growing up growing up in Mammoth, like, you didn't really know that, oh, God, people actually go to a place and they actually right. play. People, you know, all these people collect, you know, they go see them live, even though I had Kiss Alive. Do you remember? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you remember? That's the standard answer. <laughs> sure. Do you remember your first time seeing a DJ and being like aware that you were watching a DJ? Yeah, it wasn't too late actually, uh, where I appreciated the skill set. Yeah. I even saw AM at a back. He played in a garage at a backyard party in, in 2000, but it still really wasn't on on my mind in terms of. Uh, being the the center of the the universe you know mm-hmm. that night yeah um and i think probably a lot of the drama bass stuff is really what 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 turned me on um do you remember who it was raymond roker's uh science yeah and i probably saw you there that was like church for me yeah. you know it was like the shit that was going on because that there was a punk rock thing that was mm-hmm. that it felt like that's where those two worlds collided absolutely in, in a way. and um before that, I was more in, in, into industrial stuff, mm-hmm. but um, he didn't really have the DJ as like the the, the scientist. You know? Right. Yeah. We were in the corner, you know, in the yeah. dark for a long time. Mm-hmm. The lighted stages. I mean, that was that. That's another part of the travel thing. I think it kind of blew my mind. Was like, oh, suddenly we're. I mean, even at LAX, we were in a corner. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, we're on. You know, now we're on a four foot stage with all these lights on. You know, I, I personally was uncomfortable with that. That wasn't why I got into. DJing, you know? Yeah, I was too at the time. You know, I I was producing events and um and I kind of rejected the idea that we take the DJ out of the booth. Mm-hmm. And um I remember that uh we were doing parties for Scion and, and one of the it was Holla Mason. I don't know if you remember oh, those yeah, guys. Of course, they yeah. did this amazing two by four set. Right. Yeah. And they they were the first ones to kind of like demand nicely that you know, <laughs> but you know, but they wanted people to see them the I art of it. it yeah, part, part of it, right? and I think part yeah. of it was the kind of what you said, like that people may not believe it because two by four was right. most people hadn't seen that, and right. what they were doing was really special, and, and so was. to be able to see that, and but 
you know, but at, right around that time, yeah, the whole focus shifted right from from the yep. middle of the floor to the stage. Uh, and, uh, and I think AM played a role in that, too, because, you yeah. know, you have these people that are, are booking him and paying him a lot of money. They don't want to put right. him in a corner. They want to put him front and center so that everybody can see their investment, so to speak, yeah. that they've brought this guy out because they think he's special or whatever. And uh, I think that turned a corner and turned it into big business and made it about the show of being a DJ. And, and uh, that's when the technical skills really come to the forefront. And, you know, I remember specifically Adam telling me many times, you know, he would send me a mix from a night and I'd be like, man, you were scratching a lot on that, you know, mm -hmm. more than yeah. he would maybe say it like LAX. And I'd be like, why, you know, why are you scratching so much? And he goes, when they're paying you that kind of money, they're putting yeah, you, you on a stage and everybody's staring at you. I've got to do something with my hands. You can't just stand there. Right. right. And um, we didn't know, know about fist bumping at the time. No. The, the, <laughs> yeah. All the stuff we're into now that didn't he wasn't going to do that. He sure. wasn't going to cheerlead up on. Hadn't the, been invented there. yet. Exactly. Yeah. He was yeah. more of a heads down. Let me show you some skills kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, which I think is, you know, uh, a little bit missing right now, actually. Yeah. He's the Eddie Van Halen of DJ. He abs You know what? That's a <laughs> that's, that's totally good. true, I feel yeah. like. Yeah. Uh, well, I know we're almost out of time, but I have a couple more questions. Um, the, so the movie is, is, a, is a who's who of, of DJing uh, that's interviewed. And uh, any surprises? Anyone, you know, say something that was really just surprising? You know, I think that was what um, what was pretty profound was was the respect, the across the board respect that people had for Adam's skills, and also what he did in terms of pivoting, you know, pull, <laughs> pulling the DJ out of the corner, mm -hmm. and and protecting the artist um, by starting Dexstar and 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 uh, you know creating a management firm and and, and really doing. Um, you know, some brotherly work, <laughs> some mm -hmm. social work for the, mm -hmm. for the DJ. Um, you know, in, his, in that sense, he was sort of a curator for what was happening um, and a manager and an agent, like all those things collectively. And I think that there wasn't a DJ that I interviewed that didn't know that yeah. and wasn't grateful. And, uh, and from, you know, Diplo, Jazzy Jeff, Vice, even Paul Oakenfold and some mm -hmm. older dogs that, that, uh, um, and Jeff was his hero, but Jeff also, you know, he, he was, he was pretty humble and in, in terms mm -hmm. of, in terms of his praise for, for, for AM. Yeah. So, um, Mixmaster Mike, I mean, it's just, it, it, uh, <laughs> it's a shame that, that, you know, a lot of those, a lot, we only have one line from a lot of those guys, mm -hmm. but it, it just, this carousel through, the who's who, like you say, of, of, of DJing. And I think that um, I really look forward to bottling some of those interviews up into like half hour, 45 minute uh, cool. special features, bonus features, you know, yeah. that, that uh, and just letting them play in their, you know, not necessarily in their entire mm -hmm. entirety. But right. <laughs> well, so maybe in that line, is there a, was there a favorite moment that didn't make it into the doc? You know, there are a lot of funny stories and I think that, uh, it's not even musical on, on on my front. I think that there's something that actually Shane Powers said, um, and Shane Shane's just, he's 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 larger than life. You know, yeah. he's, he's a wild man, and and uh, and he talks about AM. You know, we all sort of are born with these spots, or we 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 accumulate these spots throughout our life, and um, and it's a long story, like a lot of you know, maybe a lot of Adam's stories are in terms of the setup and the and and the and the climax but um and he's talking about 
you know, Adam's spots were just that, you know, he was the fat kid on the playground yeah. that's like, hey, wait up, kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried so hard to fit that in, and uh, and it just felt it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to live in a special place. Yeah. 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 DVD extras. That's right. <laughs> um, and, you know, there were a few people that were conspicuously missing, and that's not to critique the film, but uh, but some people just weren't in it. Yep. Um, was there, uh, you know, was there people that you wanted to be in the film that you couldn't get? You know, I think uh, there are... Adam left pretty suddenly, and I feel like a lot of people haven't necessarily even processed the fact that he's gone. Yeah. Um, you know, with Scott Weiland and with Kurt Cobain, you can sort of, it's almost like you just see it in the cards. Like mm-hmm. you just, you're just dreading the day when you get that news. And I feel like a, lo- a lot of people that I was interviewing even, it was so raw that I actually felt like a, that I was conveying the news that he was not with us anymore. So I think that that um, governed some of the impulses to, 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 to be in the movie or not be in the movie about, you know, yeah. Uh, that public display, that reaction, um, you know, you have to be pretty brave, you know, and uh, and I think that um, to be able to step up f- for your, f- that the fact that you're stepping up for your friend mm-hmm. has to transcend, w- you know, the fact that you may not, um, well, you're just, you're, you're breaking down a mm-hmm. bit on the camera, on mm-hmm. camera, so... Um, there's some other things that I wasn't necessarily interested in, in terms of, you know, the Hollywood stuff mm-hmm. that the, you know, I felt like we had enough material to tell, say, the Nicole story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what's going to be said that we didn't say in another way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I'm not suggesting that. Yeah. No, no. She should have been in the film. It just, com- it's a know. completely valid, valid. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's noteworthy, I guess, that, that, you know, some people aren't in the movie, mm-hmm. but various reasons why that why that's the case yeah so what's next for the film and and what's next for you guys we are going to be out in uh in theaters and digitally actually in in march nice um we we decided to uh to not go to war with all the holiday (laughs) holiday movies and 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 take some time and really sort of seed a uh a release campaign that um that um assures its success you know mm-hmm. and 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 uh globally as well as as uh here in the states yeah um so yeah that's um we're really looking forward to building that campaign over the course of the new year nice yeah and then what else are you working on i am doing a digital series feature-length digital series of the wizard of oz no actually way. for warner brothers yeah they've uh that's awesome they own the movie so the white whiz you mean the white whiz yeah. <laughs> it's with tim armstrong actually you probably know from he's doing the music cool. um yeah. but we're starting to cast right now and um yeah it's a it's a it's a big deal but warner brothers never given away given away the songs before um there's oh, nice. been a lot of oz projects that yeah. are based on the books but you know certain things are proprietary or in, um, appear only in the movie that 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 nobody's ever been able to play with the songs, mm-hmm. the ruby red slippers. You know, in the books, they're silver silver slippers, and, cool. and so um, that's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Kevin, what are you up to? I I really enjoyed uh, working on the movie. So if uh, Kevin comes calling again on <laughs> another project, <laughs> nice. Uh, I would absolutely be interested in that. Um, it's funny. Uh, started out just being an interview and, and turned into something more and I 
I uh, I enjoyed the process. I've enjoyed actually the whole process. It's been it's been tough uh, at times. It's been hard. Uh, there's a lot of things to to figure out and, and do. But um, you know, I th- I feel like uh, we stuck together and and you know we've made things work. And so I would and and I I have a lot of respect for him um, and for Joel. So I would I'd definitely be down to to keep doing something like this. I, I like the process. I like I like the idea of making something that's lasting mm-hmm. and interesting. And plus the fact that he mainly does music, which has basically been my life up to this point, um, is also interesting to me too, because, uh, uh, you know, when I was on airplanes doing all my traveling, all I did was read bo- rock bios and, and different books, cool. basically about these types of stories that he makes. So Get, to, what, what books should we read? Oh, I, I've, I've read so many. I have like, oh, I mean, I used to literally like go on Amazon and just buy books and just take one with me on a, on a road trip. So I've read like all the rock stuff, all the Guns N' Roses books, you know. Anyone like, stand out? Uh, well, you know, I can, recommend. Oh yeah, I mean, there's a there's a ton. Um I really love Reckless Road, um which was Mark Cantor's book mm. cuz he collected every single thing before Guns N' Roses made Appetite for Destruction. So every single flyer, every single picture, like he was there shooting for them and he tells the stories of basically how the band came together and made that first album, which is obviously one of the greatest albums ever made. And I think uh that book is just I don't think you could duplicate that book you could never mm. duplicate that book again so that one's at the top of the list for me um, but there's other ones like The Dirt Motley Crue it's a great, it's a great book I, don't, I know Kevin probably loves that one Hair Bands you know, I love, no I love that it, book actually it's a great book yeah. Oral History yeah, it's, it's amazing and um, you know a lot of those rock bios um, I think a lot of them are really interesting even like Nikki Six's book is so dark but it mm. was really interesting you know yeah. And um, but I also read I, I read all types of you know, stuff on DJing, stuff on hip-hop culture, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But the, I tend to really like the rock bios because I, I think probably because they're the craziest stories. You sure, know? yeah. Do you have a uh, favorite DJ other than AM? For me? Yeah. Oh, oh that's a loaded question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or or you can, I'll give you an easier out. Um, think back to a, a performance you've seen, a specific DJ performance. I remember one in particular that um, that kind of blew me away. I was into Fatboy Slim in the 90s. Really thought he was cool and different. I loved his album. And, and I remember I came to see him do a show at the Palladium. And I was fully expecting him, you know, this is all pre-digital, to play his hits. Mm-hmm. And he showed up. <laughs> he showed up there. And his manager was in front of him and brought out a bottle of vodka and a carafe of orange juice. And he comes walking out with this little, just this little box. And it was all 45s. Mm-hmm. And it was all soul yeah. and classic 45s. And he proceeded, this is like one of his first times in America after you know his big album comes out, and he just played soul 45s for an hour. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Like, what balls, you know? He's like trying to break in America, yeah. and he doesn't give a crap about that. He's going to play what he likes to play. That was pretty amazing. How'd the crowd take it? You know, they went with it pretty good. I think they were really excited about Crystal Method. It was coming on after. <laughs> but, uh, you yeah. know, the live show. But, no, they were, they were into it. I mean, they danced. There wasn't, like, a big uh, backlash or anything. Yeah. I think a couple people were probably disappointed. But sure. I was, like, right up there watching him. And, and he was totally into it. I don't know what he was on or mm-hmm. not on. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he was he was totally into it. And it was a, it was just a cool moment to, to, to show that, like, you know, sometimes it just takes – balls basically yeah to go up there and and believe in your art that was the that's what he came up on and that was the soul of his music and he was going to come to america and he wasn't going to give in he was going to do what what he believed in and what got him to that point uh it was pretty awesome 
Mm-hmm. And I think that even carried over into AM when AM was doing something completely against the grain. Yeah. You know? Kevin, favorite uh, music video? Music video. Uh, Yours or otherwise? <clears throat> favorite experience, actually, of mine was doing probably doing the Chili Peppers. We built our own circus, camped out for three days, and... Uh, oh. Had a lot of furry creatures and and amazing, <laughs> amazing. Nice. It's an amazing experience actually. Yeah. yeah, we lived it for three days. So that's that. Probably. What about what about one that's not yours? Like something that stands out as as influential or meaningful to you? Window liquor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, Chris Cunningham is he's he's achieved guru status in my mind. Mm-hmm. So um, cool. Yeah documentary so documentary that's been important to you (laughs) funny probably the thing that's standing out in my mind maybe just because where we are right now in time is the fog of war Mm. Uh, yeah yeah it's uh that's a that's a a window into a dark dark mind sure (laughs) dark time yeah Absolutely. Um, all right, let's promote. Uh, where do we find you guys and the film online? I'm kevinkerslake.com. You can find me that way, I guess. Yeah, you can find me a few different places in my social networks or at DJ Kevin Scott. And there's also djkevinscott.com. Nice. And, and uh, where do we find the film online? You will find it on iTunes, Amazon, um, you know, all those Xbox, probably all those outlets. Cool. Usual yeah. suspects. And there is a webpage for news and stuff. It's djamdoc.com. And uh, also uh, Twitter, Instagram, DJ AM Doc as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. It's been great talking to you. Thank yeah, you. Thank so you. Much Appreciate for having us. you. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Oh, man, that was fun. I hope you enjoyed it like I did. Really enjoyed Kevin and Kevin, the Kevins as we call them. And I hope you'll join us next week for more Rebel Radio. Meanwhile, hit us up on iTunes. Leave us that five-star review iTunes, search for Rebel Radio. Click on those five stars. Do it now before you forget. Before I let you go, we got one more bill to pay. I want to see how many of you can build your own website next week at Wix.com. Send us a message after you build it and we'll check it out. We might even make fun of it on the on the air. Wix.com is amazing. It lets you build your own website easy and fast. There's no coding needed. There's lots of templates that you can customize. And you'll end up with a great-looking website that you built yourself, something to be proud of. It's easy and free. Go to Wix.com today and make it happen. Wix.com.